her name, and I'm like, your kid was at our school the same time as, as Lauren was, I think, and she said, and you guys saved him. You saved his life. I was sure he was on his way to jail, and something happened at that school that made all the difference in the world to him. Now he's an executive somewhere in the deep south and, and things, and so it's amazing what God can do through little things, and you guys that may have been around in the church back then and going, man, I don't know if it is worth all the damage that's being done to this building to have <laughs> that school here at that time. Well, let me tell you, it was. Absolutely, it was definitely worthwhile, and there is eternity because of it. Well, we are in Luke chapter 14 this morning, so turn that way in your Bibles, and let's begin with prayer. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to come just to bow before you today, to look upon your face and to bow before the God of all creation. You are the only God, and Lord, let us bow before you and you alone. Lord, as we look into your word today, we pray that you'd speak to us. Let your word be transformative in our lives. Let us look at what it has to say and choose to do and to think as it says. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we were talking some about tombstones, right? Susan and I being up in Oregon, going through cemeteries, reading different tombstones and things. And I thought it was just appropriate that with Thanksgiving this last week, we look at what it said on the tombstone of William Bradford, the governor of the Plymouth uh, Plantation. It said, uh, what our fathers with so much difficulty secured do not basically relinquish. Because every, every tombstone, every life is a story, and certainly his life was full of good and, and bad as well, Right? Well, in our story, we're still at lunch or dinner or whatever meal it is that Jesus is having. Remember, it's with the ruler of the Pharisees, with a bunch of lawyers, with other influential people there. It's, I mean, it's a who's who of whoever is in the, this town. And with that, it's just all the influential people, the, the gang's all here. And so at this dinner, they tried to trip Jesus up, remember? They brought this man to Jesus who had, who had dropsy or, or a, a facial edema, water on the face. And they were asking the question, will Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath right in front of us? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. All of those things. Yes, he would. Yes, he did. But first, remember, he asked the, the lawyers, the experts of the law, is it legal for me to do this? It is, is it contrary to law for me to heal a man on the Sabbath day? Because if you can show me from Scripture that it's wrong, I'll believe you. And it's the attitude we should all have, really, isn't it? We should be willing to change whatever we think or whatever we do based upon what the Word of God says. We need to align those things with what the Word says. Well, the lawyers couldn't say, well, yeah, right here it says you can't do that. Right here it says this is work and you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. And so, no, you are not permitted to do that on the Sabbath day. What had happened is that the teachings of men had superseded, superseded the authority of Scripture. And that happens throughout history, doesn't it? 
And we see it over and over again throughout history. And I've actually been trying to explain to a, a group of different people about how this kind of thinking led to the Reformation in the first place. The whole idea that there is something that has greater authority or equal authority with the Word of God. And what one of them said, and they wrote it down so it was nice because now I have it be, be able to show other people. He said that there are other people, other men, who have the authority to say what Scripture is. And not just the Bible alone. And so I'm like, thank you for writing that down because now anybody that's reasonable with this, that understands that, is going to back away from your position because you are saying things that are completely contrary to the Word of God. And so my next uh, saying to him was, well, if that's the case, why is it that what they are saying is contrary to what the Bible says, and at that point it's still, you, you consider it to be Scripture? And they said, well, what these men say is Scripture, and it takes precedence over what the Bible has to say. And once again, this is why we had the Reformation, right? Now, imagine going to a church all of your life and never hearing the gospel. That's what happened back then, but it's what happens today as well. In these, these churches that we, we have today, they're designated the church. They're supposed to be Christian churches. We have whole denominations that will never share the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We have individual churches who are so interested in a social gospel that they damn you for eternity for not telling you about Jesus. We have mega churches who are so interested in your life now that they don't prepare you for the next life at all. We can't really have a reformation for all of these different things, but what we can do is we can shine a light of the truth of seeing what the Word of God says and declaring what the Word of God says, living what the Word of God says so that people will know that there's a difference with that. Well, Jesus is showing uh, this difference to these elite men who were there. He showed them, yeah, the, the law permits me to be able to heal people even on the Sabbath day. And then he showed these guys practically, remember? He said, look, what, what would you do on the, on the Sabbath day? If your son or if your ox fell into the well, you'd go and rescue it, right? And so why wouldn't God do for those he loves at least as much as you would do for what you love? And so further on at the dinner, Jesus tells these guys flat out that blessing one another, inviting one another to, to each another's dinner parties and stuff, that isn't the goal for this. That isn't going to bless you. It doesn't really even bless one another. Instead of that, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will bless you who have blessed those in Jesus' name, in God's name. Taking the poor, the lame, the cripple, bringing, inviting them in and blessing them. Others who could not repay you, well, God would repay you for that. And then finally last week, there was a dude who said, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Now, whether he was trying to diffuse the situation, because remember the, the Pharisees, these people, they were uh, attacking Jesus. They were on the offensive. And by this time in the dinner, 
they were on the defensive. So I don't know if this guy was just saying that in order to kind of diffuse the situation or whatever it was, but he's exactly right. Blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But is that you? See, he knew this to be true, but he didn't know what the kingdom of God is all about. And so that's why Jesus continues, and we will continue with verse 16. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Well, the first thing that we need to do with a parable like this is to find out who the characters are. Who are these players? That has to be understood by the culture a lot of times, but this is pretty straightforward with it, right? The man is God. God, you the man. You the man. And, and God is, is hosting Thanksgiving dinner this year, right? And he's invited a whole bunch of people to it. And, and he's, he's like, well, will you come? The first set of invited guests is Israel. They were the ones invited first. The second set, those from around the city, there's Gentiles in the city, but there's also the, the Jews that are not necessarily religious Jews. So we have those. And the third set are the wicked, sinner, the pagan, the ones, the thieves, the, the bad people. And so they are the pagan, the addict, the broken all of those people. So let's look at this. God has prepared a feast. Why? Why has he prepared a feast? Well, because he loves people. Because he desires to have that fellowship, to rejoice together, to bless other people. So, and remember, this is back before refrigeration. It's back before Amazon Prime. And so you, you've got to coordinate all the different things that you're going to have for this feast, and it has to all come together at exactly the right time. And so because of that, uh, what they would do is they would send out the slave to make the invitation to all the people that were going to be invited. Say, there's going to be a feast when we get it all together. There's going to be a time when you're invited to this feast. And we look at that today and we go, well, God has promised this, this feast already, has he not? For us, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. We know it's going to be sometime, and we're invited to it. We just don't know exactly when it's going to be. And so when it was time, when preparations have been made, then they would send the slave out again and tell them, it's time. It's time. And the first time, the people had accepted the invitation, right? 
They said, yes, we will be a part of that. And so the slave went back to them and said, now is the time come. Just like with Israel. And Israel accepted the invitation, did they not? Remember with Moses back in the the wilderness coming through on the way to the promised land. And they said, yes, we will come. We will be your people and you will be our God. And so it was going to be just perfect, just exactly like God had said. But now it's time for them to receive the Messiah who has been promised. And the first guy comes up and says, well, dude, man, I, I bought some land and I, and I need to go look at it. Well, that's a good way to get swampland in, in uh, Florida, to buy land without looking at it. Who, who looks at, who buys land without looking at it first, right? Well, a, a fool, clearly. But this guy gives us our first clue that it's an excuse rather than a reason. In fact, it says that they made excuses, not that they had excuses, not that they had reasons. They are all just justifications for the apathy that they have and not being excited about the feast that is being presented to them. So for all of them, all three, it's Excuse after excuse after excuse. And it represents all of Israel and all the people that made excuses from Israel. Now, I was making, I had an appointment with my physical therapist uh, this last week. And I was, as I was talking to her, she said, man, we got some fantastic discount tickets to Hawaii, to Maui. And it doesn't hurt any at all that she's got an uncle that has a house out there that's, that's empty and Clearly, I, I need to become better friends with this physical therapist. But she's like, we've got to go out there and going to do this. It's going to be awesome and it's in just a couple of weeks. But she was a little concerned because she's got a first grader. And she's like, I, I've got to be able to get my first grader out of school for this to be able to, to do this. Because a week later, the ticket prices were $800 more per plane ticket to go out there. And so that, that's not an option. In fact, if that was an option, I needed to go to a different physical therapist. Apparently, I'm paying too much. But anyway, I mentioned that what is the standard for a lot of people? What is the default for so many people that you hear? The excuse that is unrejectable is COVID, right? Well, my son, it's possible that he has COVID. And it is possible. He's been on an airplane for eight hours. He could have gotten COVID on his way to Hawaii, Sounds kind of sketchy, doesn't it, to give an excuse like that when you know that isn't true. And she isn't doing it, by the way. I'm just, I was joking to her. She understood that. And it's just how people give excuses sometimes, is it not? And so it's as sketchy as what these three are saying. Has this guy looked at the land before, before he bought it? Almost assuredly. Is that land going to be there tomorrow? Unless it's springtime in Tucson, the land is going to be there tomorrow. He can look at it later. So again, it's bogus that he's doing this. And the truth is, God, he's just not that into you. He has no desire to have that intimate relationship with you. He has no desire to come in and have this kind of fellowship with you. Whatever relationship he has begun with, that Israel had begun with, they put 
stuff between them and God. That's why Paul and James and John and Jesus tell us not to do that, to be careful not to allow other things to come in between us and God when we have made that same kind of commitment to him. Well, the second dude, he says, I've bought five, uh, five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to go try them out. It's kind of the same thing with this. But before buying a used John Deere tractor, you're going to try it out, aren't you? I mean, Lewis is looking for tractors. We're not going to let him get one because when he gets one, he's going to move to Kansas or some silly place. But, but he, he, he wants a tractor. I, I, I tell him he can use it out here, garden all he wants. Anyway, he wants a tractor. If he were to buy a John Deere tractor, you'd check it out first, wouldn't you? You would see what, what would do and if it was mechanically sound and those things, right? Well, same with a John Ox as with a John Deere. You've got these ox, you're going to check them out first, aren't you? Who buys without first kicking the tires? Of course, these will kick you back. But, but you've got to have already tried them out before buying them. So this is bogus also. But the fact that he bought five yoke of oxen means that there were ten oxen. The yoke has two of them. And so he's got ten oxen now. He's a wealthy man. He doesn't need a feast. See, back in these days, a feast was an important thing, and especially a wedding feast where you were there for a couple of days. If you were invited to this feast here, it would be something for the poor, the lame, the crippled, the people that Jesus had been talking about. It would be something that would be such a blessing to them not to have to pay for a meal for that, pay for that meal. And in fact, for that whole day, because like Thanksgiving, it could be and probably would be their only meal for that day. So you would go and you would feast and you would enjoy yourself and it would be such a blessing to you. You would go home and you'd comb out your beard and you'd have breakfast for the next day. It was something that was important to a lot of people. But this guy's so rich, he doesn't need that. He doesn't care about that. It's not a huge deal to him. But see, this is the kind of stuff that happened in the Lord's Supper in the early church. The Lord's Supper was kind of a combination between communion that we have and potlucks that we have. We're having a potluck today, so again, again, good timing with that. But what would happen is that the richer people, they would come in and they would bring really good food, nutritious food, super hearty, good, expensive food. The poor people would bring whatever they could, which usually wasn't much. It might just be some bread. It might be yesterday's bread. It might be a can of beanies and weenies or whatever. It, it's it's the, the simplest, most bland, tasteless thing at the potluck meal. But for one day a week, the poor people would get about 80% of the nutrition that they got for the week at this one meal. Because the rich people would come in and say, we got you covered. And they would bless people with it. And then the poor people would turn around and instead of eating their own stuff, they would eat the things that the poor people had brought. Because they loved them that much. Because the fellowship that they had with them was, was that great. So again, Oxman here, he has everything that he needs. He doesn't need to be blessed by anybody else. And he certainly doesn't think that he needs to bless anyone else. He doesn't even need to have neighbors at all to be able to hang out with 
in times of trouble and things, like State Farm, a good neighbor is there. No, he doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't need anybody. It's kind of like those people today who say, I don't need the church. I can be a Christian without being in a church. Well, you can be a fish without being in water, but it helps a lot. So we need one another. We need to be able to bless one another, and we need to be able to be a part of one another. So this, this ox man here, he's not just a fool. He's an oxymoron is what he is. And so then this third guy comes along, and he says, I got a wife. Bye. I don't know if she wears the pants in the family or what the deal is, but the conversation was over. It's like, yeah, <laughs> for this reason, I can't come, so... So by, now, there were restrictions to newly married people, newly married men in particular. They could not go to war for a year. If you had been married, you couldn't go to war for a year. Why not? Well, because they want you to be able to make sure that you have a child to be able to take care of your wife should you not make it through that war. Well, anyway... These were some of those things, but it did not preclude them from being able to go to a feast. And in fact, being able to say to your wife, hey, you don't have to cook tonight. That would be a good thing. Your wife would appreciate that. Even if there's not a, you can still cook, whatever, never mind. But it reminds me of the fiasco with Adam, doesn't it? Where Adam traded naked woman for God. Said, no, no God, I don't, I don't care about you, I've, I've got this. I want this. And so this man is more interested in this wife of his and what she wants than what God wants. Anyway, we know that the family is more important than church. The priority is God, then family, then church, right? But if you have a family, you shouldn't necessarily be at church every, every night. There's other things that you need to do as a family also, but... Before God is, before family is God, and making family a priority means showing the importance of church and not just blowing it off or whatever thing is going on this week, right? If you skip church to do something that you could have done another day, you tell your family that God isn't that important, church isn't that important, and what is the priority are the things that I want instead. We're going to see that in a, a little later as well. Anyway, regardless, Israel in these three examples has rejected God. And Paul tells us that this is good for the Gentiles. That because Israel rejected their Messiah, that the Gentiles have been grafted in. And in fact, the Gentiles are going to be the, the greater part of the church in a few years after this. And so with this, we see that the Gentiles have rejected I'm sorry, that the Gentiles have been grafted in because of what Israel has done here. And so we also see that the second group has been invited in even before the slave was told to do so. And so the people that were in, in the place, in the city, they were also invited in here. Now it's time to go past the good Gentile, which is also an oxymoron, and go into a place where we find those people that are social outcasts. We don't want them to, to be with us normally. 
because they're thieves, they're, they're bad people, they're of, of ill repute. But this guy with his generosity is like, my house needs to be filled, need to have these people come in. So go past the safe part of town, go past the good part of town, and bring in everybody that you possibly can. And this has always been God's plan, right? Whosoever will is invited. God died, or sent his son for whosoever will believe in him. And so we understand this because what we know for a fact is that no matter what your sin, the blood of the cross is sufficient. And we sang about that this morning. How cool is that? A couple of important side notes with what we have with this, though, is that we are told to bring people, not wish people into the kingdom. Because see the other character in here? Who's this slave in, in the parable that was given there? It is every person that has been given the responsibility of inviting people into the kingdom of God, which means us. And so with this responsibility that we have, we go and we bring them in from wherever they are. Not from within the church, not from within the city, not from within the good places, but we go to whosoever will. Praying is not enough. We're to bring people into the kingdom of God. So keep that in mind because we need to do what God has commanded us. The other thing that we need to look at here is the word compel. Compel them to come in. And I want you to understand, mostly so that you can answer other people with this, that this portion of this verse was taken out of context way back in the day in order to promote so many of the atrocities that were done in the name of the church. For them, to compel means by any means, make them come in and profess Christ. Even if that means torture. Even if that means death. Whatever it takes for them to say Jesus is Lord, you do that to them in order to bring them into the church. It was the catalyst for the Crusades because they took this portion of Scripture and made it say something that it does not say at all. And when people come to you and they will say to you, see, this is why I don't believe that Christianity is good, that the church is good, because what we see back then. We'll explain to them, this is what happens when corrupt people are running the church and when the Word of God is rejected for what the people want it to say. So it is at this time that the Bible is not written in the language of the common people. It's written in Latin. And people are reading it in Latin and Greek, and people are going, I have no idea what you're talking about, man, but, you know, as long as you bless me at the end of the service, it doesn't make any difference. And so it was at this time that Tyndale came in, and he made it so that the Bible was translated for the common person. And for his efforts, he was burned at the stake because the people did not want people to know what the Word of God really said. They wanted to twist it and turn it to make it what they wanted it to say. This, again, is why we had the Reformation. And so, again, when people come to you and they give you this excuse that, man, Christianity is bogus because look at what happened. No, people are bogus when they pretend to be Christians and they have no desire whatsoever to be what God wants them to be. To compel is to be giving a heartfelt, all your effort, invitation to the people. 
compel them. Go, explain to them. Show them their needs. Show them what a blessing it would be for them to be there. It's rooted in genuine concern and in love for people. And so that's what we're supposed to do when we go and compel people. In verse 24, it said, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So remember the context here. First one is, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. The other part, if you remember, was from last week when it said, uh, the guy said, are there only a few that are being saved? Well, there were only a few that were being saved from Israel, but so many more that are going to be saved throughout the rest of the world. But this guy, you know, blessed is everyone who eats in the kingdom of God. Jesus' response is, that will only be you eating in the kingdom of God if you start to put your trust in me. Otherwise, you are the one making the excuse, not the ones coming to the dinner. And it's fair because these people for however long now have been making these weak sauce excuses about not following after Jesus. They're just not going to follow after him. He heals on the Sabbath day. No way I'm following after him. He heals by the power of God. I'm going to follow after him. And excuses today are just as weak, are they not? You have people that say, oh, people say that, that there's just no, no real evidence of God, so therefore I'm going to believe them rather than the overwhelming actual evidence that I can see with my own eyes. Because other people say it, I'm going to ignore what is obvious to me. We come up with all sorts of excuses, do we not? Verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build it and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, not, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is trying to compel these leaders to come. Look, understand, God wants you to be a part of this feast that you were talking about, this bread in the kingdom of God. But to do that, you're going to need to empty yourself. You're going to need to empty yourself of pride, of self-reliance, of greed, Will they do that? Well, you know, some will. Some won't. But Jesus is not softening the gospel so that more people will come. In fact, he's restricting the size of the gate. 
He's saying, this is what it's going to take. This is what you need to be doing in order to be my disciple. It's not just a matter of being good, of following after the law, of doing this stuff. No, instead of that, you must. Remember that from last week? All the times we saw, you must, you must, you must. Well, using different words, Jesus is saying the same thing here. And the first one would be, you must decide. You must decide if you're going to follow after me, if you're going to be my disciple or not. If you're going to receive the invitation or not. How many of you guys were alive back in the 1970s? Hey, never mind, I can sell. Back in the day, we had an advertisement for Alka-Seltzer, right? Try it, you'll like it. Well, there were bumper stickers back in the day that said, Jesus, try him, you'll like him. Which sounds quaint and stuff like that, but it doesn't really work that way. You cannot try Jesus. I've seen people attempt to. Some have said, hey, you know, I tried Jesus and, and it just didn't work out. It, it just, it, it, it wasn't for me. But the reality is that they did not try him because Christianity is a conversion. It's a born-again experience. There is no try. There's only do or do not do. You can't have a partial righteousness. You cannot have a partial conversion. You cannot have a partial born-again experience. You can't try it. It's all or nothing. And so if you come along and you say, well, I tried Jesus. No, what you did is you thought about the philosophy of Jesus, but then you found out that without the experience and relationship with Jesus, that the philosophy didn't make enough sense that you didn't have the power to live the life that you were supposed to live, and so you gave up on it. Yeah. So, Jesus, again, it's all or nothing. And with this, he says, the whole hating your father or mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and even your own life. And this is where understanding biblical concept of hate really comes handy with this. Some will say, well, you know, it's easy for me to do this because I already hate my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and even myself, so maybe I should be a Christian. But they don't understand what it's, what it's talking about here. We see several times in Scripture that it tells us that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. All right, well, with our understanding of, of what hate is, what do we do when we hate someone? Well, we'll tear up their picture, right? We'll think bad things about them. We'll hope bad things happen to them. Uh, we will Facebook stalk them and, 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 and try to make them look foolish and stuff like that. We will, we, it's like, ah! Because we hate them, right? Well, what did God do to Esau when he hated him? It says that God blessed him that God made him a mighty nation, and that God prospered him above everyone else around. It's not the same thing, is it? It's not the same hate at all. See, to love or to hate is to choose or to reject. God wanted someone 
to be of the lineage of Messiah. Messiah needs to be born, needs to come from one of these two brothers, and so he chose. He loved Jacob, and he hated, he rejected Esau. Well, why did he reject Esau? The short answer is, you can only have one. You can only have one. I had the line from. And so he chose Jacob. It wasn't a hatred like we think of hatred. And so this situation that Jesus is talking about here, it's, it's the same thing. You can only choose one. You can only choose God to be on the throne, God alone, or it can be family. It can be your wife. It can be your whatever. It can be yourself. But we have to reject all of those other things, including ourselves, if we're really going to follow after God and be his disciple. We need to die to self and pick up our cross. That's why we need that cross, to remind ourselves that we are dead to self and alive unto God. It is the only way to follow Jesus. You guys see this big old house next door oftentimes, right? If you were here back in, whatever, 37 years ago when we were building the dome over there, they were building this over here. It was an ER doctor who was building, and it was a log cabin. Look at that and go, there's a log cabin underneath that? There is. See, this doctor ran out of money, and so it's like, and, and then he moved out of town. What you have over there is the third time people have tried to make that into a home. And in there somewhere, there's a log cabin underneath it, and there are big portions of We don't have anything to do with this, so we're just going to cover it up with stucco because he ran out of money. And when he did that, there were, I mean, there were people going, that didn't work out so well for him, did it? And it's not like today where he could have come back a year later and sold it for a profit. No, he sold it for a loss because he didn't consider the cost for it. It's the same with kings that go out to battle going to engage your enemy can i defeat my enemy do i have a tactical advantage or is it time for me to run away well gideon and a couple of others accepted you need to plan you need to think you need to consider and then you need to commit whether it's war or whether it's our relationship with god we need to look at this we need to think about it we need to understand what the gospel is We need to understand that the invitation isn't just, well, come and do whatever you want to. It's to come, be my disciple by losing everything else to gain me because he's well worth it. We need to consider the price to be paid. And then we can do what the song says. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. But just like these people who rejected the invitation There are a lot of people, we come to Christ, we say, I will give you everything, I give you my whole life, and then we start sneaking stuff back. Because that's the heart and the mind of man. That's that's how we are. And that's why we need to keep in mind that, that we are to be disciples of his and to die to ourselves, that everything belongs to God. It's a good test for us to see if we're being good disciples. Ask ourselves, have I given everything to God? What is it? that stands between me and what God wants me to be and having that that relationship that I'm supposed to have. It's a good test. And lastly, in Oregon, when 
and Susan and I were there a couple weeks ago, we saw Lewis and Clark's salt works, a place where they brought in the salt water from, from the ocean and they dehydrated it so that it would have salt because salt was so very important for them. Again, no refrigeration. They had to have the salt to be able to salt the meat to be able to preserve it. It also enhanced the flavor. And so it was given great priority. There were a lot of people that were given the responsibility of making sure that they had the salt that they needed for that. So the believer, we're called salt, are we not? The believer does all of this, but what else do we do? What else do we do? We preserve. We bring flavor and all. I asked this question about 40 years ago or something, and a young man answered, it makes you thirsty. I'd never thought of that before. Salt makes you thirsty. And Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary, uh, all who are thirsty, right? If you're thirsty and if we've made people think about Jesus and their need for Jesus, then that's a good thing. It's what the church ought to be doing. But if we have no flavor left, it, it's just thrown out. In fact, some of the salt, even if you weren't, weren't using it for flavor, weren't using it to preserve meat, it was used to throw it out on the, the road to kill the vegetation so that you would have a road. It was thrown on the manure pile so that it would disintegrate the manure pile and make it less smelly as well. So, but Jesus says, if it's lost all of its savor so that it can't even be thrown on manure, how's it going to get any of that seasoning back? And he's talking to those people who will reject him even at this point. That's why he says, you who have ears to hear, let them hear. Do you understand? I'm talking about you somewhere in this parable. Are you the one who has rejected me and there's no savor for you anywhere besides Jesus? Or are you the one who's going to answer the call to this feast. We asked about the person who grew up in church and never heard the gospel message. If that happened, I mean, shame on the people that would cause that to happen, right? But what if there's people today that never hear the gospel message? They never hear about the invitation to the feast, well, that's on us, not upon anyone else, isn't it? So, you've been invited to the feast, and you've given responsibility over other invitations for other people. It is not your responsibility who will come, but it is your responsibility to, to compel people, to share with them, to show with them, to talk to them, to bring those who will come. If we don't do that, are we not unfaithful servants? At the beginning I said, and you seem to agree, that we should be willing to change whatever we think or do to align it with the Word of God. Well, this is the Word of God. And it's time to align. What does he say and where do I need to change? Holy Spirit, show me what needs to be different in my life. And then empower me to do what it is you're calling me to do. This is the word. Make sure we're aligned. There's four things 
to do with that. The first one is come. First one is come. We are invited to this feast. Come. Don't make any excuses. Don't look for the love of the world or things of the world. Reject those things for God and come to this feast. Are we one who is going to be blessed for eating bread in the kingdom of God? The second one is to choose. It's either the invitation and the meal or excuses. Choose, decide. Don't be half-hearted. Don't be lukewarm. Look, understand, and choose. Have you answered the initial invitation? Have you come to faith in Christ only to now say, it's not important for me to draw close to God. I'll just hang out here and then I'll go be a part of the feast in heaven later. We begin by giving everything to God, all to Jesus I surrender, but again, we, we take back some of those things. There's a book out there called My Utmost for His Highest. There's another book out there written by a friend of a friend that is My Almost for His Highest. My utmost. He deserves my utmost. Is that who we are? Or are we the almost excuse after excuse? The third thing is that we need to compel. We need to share with people. We need to show people the benefits of, of coming to faith in Christ. One of the things we need to understand with this is that we don't use shiny lures and hooks to try to snag people. We don't trick people into the kingdom. It's a net. And we lower the net, and those that God will bring to us, we bring to him. And so compel people, share the gospel with them in a way that they can understand. And the fourth one is that we need to calculate. Calculate the, the cost. Is the gospel really more important than anything else in this world? Is it really worth more than relationships I could be having instead? Is it really worth more than, than the, the money that I could be making if I was doing things in an ungodly way? Is Jesus so important that you choose him over father, over mother, brother, sister, wife, children, self? He should be. Calculate what it is. Look at the true gospel calling and then answer it with, yes, Lord. Because he who paid the price to forgive your sin offers you eternal life. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we do thank you for your word. In it, we, we surely see that we, we fall short a lot. And so we thank you for the grace that you have purchased for us through your blood. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. We thank you that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But as we go through this week, God, I, I pray that you would show us these things that, that we miss the mark with, that you would make it so that we would reject the things that keep, that would, we want to reject the things that keep us from rejecting you. We want to know you more. Let us reject the things of the world and never reject you. We are so very grateful for all that you do. Now, Lord, as we go for a time of fellowship as we enjoy a meal together. We pray that you would bless that. 
Bless the food, strengthen our bodies, but also bless our fellowship because it's in the precious name of Jesus that we gather. Amen. Amen. Lord, bless you guys. I know there's way more than we could possibly eat, so join us even if you didn't bring anything.